Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. Before we get started, the Beer Edge Podcast is brought to you by Arrived. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just a transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity. Your managers will love the world-class support team. Your guests will love the seamless ordering experience and probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. We'll get into the show in a moment, but first, I've got John Hannafin joining me. He is the Vice President and Director of Education at the Siebel Institute of Technology in Chicago, which is a sponsor of the program. And today, we're talking about the benefits of a Siebel brewing education. So I start by asking John about the importance of learning the theory behind the practice of brewing. Understanding those primary building blocks of brewing and how to comprehend before going from a crawl to a full-on sprint is really important. And I, we always have an old saying of, you know, you need to learn the rules before you can, you know, break them. And that's very true in, in brewing. You don't want to just come out of the starting gate, you know, just doing whatever and not really understanding what you're doing. Oftentimes, what breweries have is a situation where they'll have workers who they don't really understand why they're doing something. Knowing that theory behind it and understanding, well, if, if I don't do it this way, this could happen. That's key to how we educate the student. It's understanding this is why you do things a certain way. And so that when they go out into the real world of brewing, no matter what they're doing, whether it's working you know, in the lab, whether it's uh, working on the brew deck, in the cellars, packaging facility, they'll understand why they're doing certain things. They'll be able to even to tr- possibly, I would hope, troubleshoot some of the issues that occur in all of those areas. We're excited to have the Siebel Institute as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast, and John Hannafin will be joining us again at the bottom of the program. But in the meantime, I'd invite folks to check out Siebel's website at SiebelInstitute.com for more information on brewing education opportunities. One of the best parts of covering the craft beer industry for a while is getting to experience new voices. Perspectives tend to harden over time, and without the addition of new blood, they can calcify and begin to become immovable. And the industry so often feels like a singular experience, one that speaks with a too-uniform voice, that serves as so much retread. Matthew Curtis stands in the middle of all of this. He started writing about beer long enough ago that he's seen a few things. But he's also not so deep in the game that he can't see the value of supporting new voices. He started as a blogger, working on his voice and technique. He eventually parlayed that into some freelance work, including at Good Beer Hunting, where I first recall encountering his writing. He added photography to his portfolio of talents and adorned his well-crafted pieces with striking photos of their subjects. His photos imbue substantial character into the tiniest of subjects, a clamp or a hose in a brewery cellar, the way the light lands on a dusty barrel filled with wild ale. After deciding to turn his freelance hobby into a full-time gig, Matt did what I wish so many others would do. He picked his head up, he looked around, and he plotted an intentional path forward. He wasn't happy writing the same old pieces for the same old publications. He wanted to express himself in new ways, new formats, and to give others the opportunity to discover and amplify their own voices. So in 2019, Matt founded the online drinks, food, and travel site, Pellicle, with co-founder and brewer Johnny Hamilton. Based in the UK, Matt and Johnny had a clear vision of what they wanted to capture in the worlds of beer, cider, wine, and food, among other subjects. The central directional principle behind Pellicle is one that is often absent from so much similarly focused writing, finding joy within the cultures they cover. Over time, Pellico has evolved into a website delivering weekly in-depth dives into people, places, and drinks, an occasional podcast of the same name, one that delightfully meanders between interviews and long monologues of Matt's own thinking, and occasional events. All told, they aim to capture the joie de vivre we so often find within our favorite cultures. This might be at a favorite bar or restaurant, adjacent to a steaming brew house, or within an orchard or vineyard. At Pellicle, we hope to take you there with us. As you'll hear me say during the interview, which we'll present to you in two parts, 
I've been a Patreon subscriber of Pellicle for some time, and I'd encourage others to do so as well. I support beer media, and I believe there should be dozens more publications bringing great beer content to a thirsty world. Pellicle remains a shining example of what can happen when two people get together with a vision and help enlist and raise up others in support of their collective mission. In our discussion, which we conducted over a long Zoom call, Matt and I discuss his backstory, how he developed a love of beer while visiting his expat father, who now lives in the United States, and we delve further into the work at Pellicle. We also discuss one of my favorite recent pieces of beer writing, his long and lovely profile of Dan Paquette and Martha Holly, once of Pretty Things Beer and Ale Project here in Boston, and now of St. Mars of the Desert in Sheffield, England. Here's my conversation with beer writer, author, and publisher, Matt Curtis. So Matt, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to join us here on the Beer Edge podcast. I know you have quite a few things going on, including your most recent book, Modern British Beer, which I'm very excited to to talk to you about because I had a chance to, to review it last week, but thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. So for those who don't know, and, and it may not be that many, Matt is uh, is a beer writer and a publisher and a photographer and, and a variety and an author. Um, but you were not always in the beer industry and came to it, you know, after after some years of doing some other things, just to sort of get a a feeling for sort of who you are. Like, where did you grow up, and and what did you do before becoming a beer writer? So. I grew up in a part of England called Lincolnshire. Um, so it's the east side of England. And I lived there till I was about 19. It's a very rural part of England. Um, I grew up very near the city of Lincoln. Uh, my dad worked in agriculture. And then I went to college when I was 19 and I studied music production. I wanted to work in sound recording. Um, so I went up to university uh, in the northeast of England, in a town called Middlesbrough, and at 22, and this was 2005, there was nothing I wanted to do more than live in London and hopefully work in the music industry. So I moved to London when I was 22, and I tried to get a job in the music industry, and it was very much a, a closed door. So I ended up getting a job in musical instrument retail, and I worked in that field for whoa, 12 years, I think. Mm. Um, but, uh, and I played in bands and, and had some fun, but it wasn't really where I saw myself uh, in the future. But something that happened to me in that time when I was in my late 20s is uh, one of the most significant things that happened is my dad got a job in the US. My dad is now a US citizen. He has since this year, but he moved to the town of Fort Collins, Colorado in 2010. And I went to visit him and I was a beer lover but I wasn't, it was, I didn't consider it a hobby. It was, I just liked a nice pint or an interesting bottle of beer. But when I went to the tap room at Odell Brewing, I saw a different kind of beer culture that I couldn't really relate to back in the UK. And I became kind of obsessed with it. Um, and I started a beer blog, as many people do. So it was January the 4th, 2012. So I'm coming up on the 10 year anniversary of starting my original blog, Total Ales. And I kind of just threw myself into it. I really hoped it would be a way of tempering my enthusiasm, but all it did was open more doors and make me more enthusiastic about writing about beer. And that led uh, eventually to, not intentionally, but I started to get inquiries about writing professional commissions, which was a bit of fun. And that kind of got out of hand. And in 2016, when I was writing several columns for people I decided to give it a go. I quit my job which at a musical instrument distributor, a well-paid, secure job with all sorts of perks, and I decided to be a freelance writer, which has none of that, um, but it does have a, a lot of freedom, and it's, it, you know, it's what I hope to do for the rest of my working life. And so you know, for a lot of folks, trying to break into beer writing, I think for folks, seems seems very daunting. It seems like a, a difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure I necessarily agree. I feel as if, you know, it's it's kind of one of those industries where unlike maybe the wine industry or others, um, and certainly not, you know, say politics or news or things that require certain backgrounds, or frankly, a lot of connections. 
it's almost a, a thing today, where, especially with social media, that you can kind of just do. And I've heard you say this on a recent podcast. I went down to New York uh, this past weekend and had a long you know, four or five hour drive to myself. And so I, I'm not a particularly avid fan of a lot of beer podcasts, but I, I have enjoyed yours, but some of them are, are rather lengthy. So I, I need an opportunity to really sit with it and listen. And this was the perfect opportunity. It was nice, quiet. I was away from my kids and I had 71 minutes to sit and listen to, to your dulcet tones on the way to New York. And one of the things I think you said in there was, just kind of go and do it. If you're interested in becoming a beer writer, it's not, it's, it may seem daunting from the outside, but I, you know, with social media, with the access to the web and everything, I feel like this should be a new era where if you have something to say, if you have a voice, do it. Absolutely. I mean, one great example I will reference here is the food writer, Alicia Kennedy, who had some great feature writing gigs and lost them in the pandemic, so started a newsletter that she worked incredibly hard to produce really thoughtful content in a space, in a food writing space that was going through this amazing shift. Amazing is not the right word, but this huge shift. Uh, the beer writing hasn't really seen anything similar, but uh, she kind of owned that space. And I get a lot of, you know, especially now I publish my own beer magazine. I get a lot of people asking me how they break into it. And I just tell them to write, like just publish yourself. Like I must have published hundreds of articles before. Uh, I was very lucky that a magazine that I've been writing features for for over six years called Ferment was starting this print magazine and they were looking for new, new voices and they liked my blog. And they offered me a little bit of money to write some stuff for them. And that's grown as my beer writing career has grown. So I was fortunate in, in the timing of that but i would say that i think beer is still largely an underserved media yes uh, people are incredibly interested you know people are you know i see the numbers from pellicle and and my podcast and there's great interest in it but i only think people will get more interested in it if the the field broadens if more people come into it and write over the last year or two actually you've seen a lot of great new voices come through um, and I think there's, you know, after a decline, sad decline of some publications, there are now kind of a growing number of kind of DIY mm -hmm. uh, publications that are that are growing and establishing themselves more professionally. So, uh, yeah, just people have just got to write. And I think it is tough that you, you will probably have to self-publish and not get paid yeah. for stuff for a long time uh, to build an audience and define your voice. And that can be challenging. Uh, but there's, there is plenty of room out there for, for great writing. And how did you come to develop your voice? Because you have a particular, you know, a lot of folks have kind of end up in a lane or, you know, I know in my career, I've written columns, I've written long form, I've done a variety of different things, but um, you sort of have gotten known for a certain type of article, a certain type of style. And how did that, you know, how did that develop? Because you're going from a blog writer, you know, someone who's writing blog posts, which sometimes can be very short and, and pithy can be sometimes as long as you want them to be, because frankly, you probably don't benefit from the use of an editor, which is always very helpful. Um, even though writers hate editors, sometimes we actually need them. Uh, so how did you come to develop sort of the preference and a voice for the longer form feature journalism that or feature writing that you do? petulance <laughs> um, in the early days I definitely um, had less information and more opinions and I think blogging gives you the space to really get that kind of stuff out there that stuff that editors would send back to me and saying where's your source for this how are you going to back this up it, you know blogging gave me that freedom to really like stick the oar in and I was unsatisfied with the system I'd seen this American beer culture I was very ignorant of um of British beer culture and coming in with kind of this strong voice meant that there was a lot of people that agreed with me, but there were a lot of people who reacted to me. Um, and initially there was some friction there, but what's interesting now is a lot of people I used to argue with 10 years ago are now really good friends mm -hmm. and we tend to agree on stuff. Yes. And I think because going freelance gave me the opportunity to really invest myself in beer as an industry. And I get to spend time at, you know, speaking to um, not just business owners, but people at all levels of the industry, uh, you know, from the brewery floor to the, to behind the bar. Um, 
to everywhere really and having different perspectives and allowing all this information to inform my opinion as it goes and I would say that um, I've mellowed I've also you know I was also in my early 20s when I started writing about beer I'm now nearly 40 and you, you do mellow out you do um, and and but having more information has, has helped that so initially I was I was uh, you know Petulant is, is the best word to, to describe some of my early blogging stuff. But when I started to work with editors who saw that I had kind of a bit of, of raw ability to write about beer, but then, you know, made me said, oh, you've got one source in this article. I want to see five. Mm. And I'm like, what? That sounds like a lot of work <laughs> that I don't want to do. And now I'm like, that's a, you know, a bare minimum for a, for a feature. Who am I going to speak to? What voices do I want in this piece? And it's just because I've been doing it for long enough. It's, it's experience, really. Um, but uh, I, I think, and I've turned myself down a bit, but, you know, there's certain things in the industry that I try to be measured on, such as the recent allegations against McKellar is a great example on this. And I try and be take a uh, an attitude that is more pragmatic, but mm-hmm. part of me still wants to really stick the oar in, stamp the boot on the neck is a, is a term I've I've used. So I have to kind of figure out how to balance the desire to do that with a desire to report. So, I mean, to add to this, I now have, re- you know, when I had a, a blog, I didn't really worry about what my readers wanted to see. I just wanted to write a blog. And now I, I do, I'm mindful that people will come and read my stuff. And I have sort of a, a responsibility to, to those people to provide them with accurate reporting as well as writing that is, is entertaining. And how did you go from, you know, it's one thing for folks to try to get over the hump of being a beer writer and trying to break into that trade. And I would say for them, you know, my advice as, as with yours is just write, but also pitch places and, and pitch, you know, it used to be a lot easier. There used to be in the least in the States, many more publications, small little regional and, and local publications that maybe didn't pay very well, but you could get your foot in the door. And once you had a, a clip or two um, it was, you know, for me, that was how it was. I, I, you know, pitched a place called Celebrator in um, in uh, California, and that magazine accepted it. And after that, they you know you you're a beer writer, you're a published beer writer, and you can pitch other places. But to then go from you know most folks wonder how they can become a beer writer. Then if they manage it, then that's where they stay. How do you take the next step where you decide I want to be a publisher? I I'm, I've been happy doing what I'm doing, but I, I I'm looking to to take another step. And and for this, we're talking about uh, Pellicle, the magazine, the online magazine, online drinks, food, travel, and and many other subjects that you co-founded uh, with your co-founder Johnny Hamilton in 2019. And I will say at the outset here, I am a Patreon subscriber. I have been for some time, and I'd recommend other folks uh, get out and support Pellicle and other publications as well. But how did you, you know, how did you decide to take that step? And I hugely appreciate that, Andy. It's uh, we've got some big plans for for 2022. Um, but I was lucky in my early days of professional writing that I got, uh, to write for an American publication called Good Beer Hunting. And I worked with an editor called Austin Ray, who was one of these editors that really molded me and beer writing was at a different level in the U S there was more of it and it was taken more seriously. And I think that was a reflection of the, the U S beer industry. So I got to kind of exist in that, in that world. And I parted ways with Good Beer Hunting at the end of 2018. No, I didn't have the intention to start my own publication. Uh, at least I didn't think I did. But um, Johnny, who is a, he's brilliant. He is a very creative, wonderful soul, but also a Harriet Watt master's trained, uh, his master's is in brewing and distilling. So he, he really knows his stuff. But he actually wanted to start as uh, a beer uh, print zine, really. Uh, very DIY because he, there's some really amazing wine magazines um, that he loved and he would carry them around with them. And whenever I bumped into him at the pub, he would have them in his bag. And he's like, I want to do something like this for beer and call it Pellicle. And part of me was dissatisfied with, I've got to be careful what I say because I write for a lot of these, a lot of publications. And um, I think the quality of beer media in the UK is getting better and better uh, but there's part of me was dissatisfied with with the status quo of of beer media in the UK and wanted to put something uh, with my mine and Johnny's voice and 
bring the kind of stories we wanted to read to um not just the uk audience but i mean pellicle is an international audience mm-hmm. recently like this month actually 40 percent of our audience was in the united states probably because we published an article on sierra nevada celebration which is quite popular <laughs> i'm led to believe but that, is, um, that, is, that or allagash white will always get you some clicks <laughs> <laughs> exactly but um no it was, it was really i saw an opportunity for um a different kind of beer reporting in the UK that I had experienced in the US. And um, we were right, you know, we, we, we were gradually making inroads into uh, a readership in the UK. And beer in the UK, it's really reflective of how it's changed in that it got Americanized really quickly. And I was uh, one of those people definitely responsible for that desire to be Americanized but we got to this point a couple of years ago where we realized that, wow, we actually had this amazing beer culture all along and we need to reinvest ourselves in that. And Pellicle kind of came along at a time when this was becoming clear. So not only have we managed to cover this sort of uh, these new wave of breweries, but also bring in, um, you know, I wrote about Harvey's Best, which is one of the most satisfying pieces of, of beer writing I've had the fortune to produce and um, when I started beer writing, I wouldn't have thought about writing about a traditional bitter. And then, I, you know, I would go to, to meet other beer writers and beer people and they said, oh, I'd love to read an article about Harvey's. And I'm like, well, I have visited the brewery and I, I think I've got that in my locker, you know. So it's this gradual maturation of, of uh, the beer industry. And, and I guess the media is following suit. Um, Pellicle is, is kind of a joy to publish, really. We, we, I mean, one of the most satisfying things about it is getting to commission um, other writers, including new voices. I think I write for it occasionally, but being able to step aside and, you know, edit these, commission and edit these voices, just like I did, uh, essentially affording other people the same opportunity I had um, a few years ago, one of the best bits of advice I ever got, um, not from a writer, but from a brewer is, is always pay it forward. Like, like reinvest yourself into the industry. And I, and you know, I'm a, I think beer writing is important. So Pellicle is my way of trying to do that. And as an editor, as someone who receives pitches uh, that come in and sometimes it may be a few, or sometimes it may be quite a few, you, you're not, Pellicle is not publishing dozens of articles a week. It's it's pretty selective. It's pretty minimal. You, oftentimes there's one feature a week or so on average. How do you, inevitably you have more pitches than you can deal with. What, is, what are the type of pitches that that find a home uh, in your heart and in the publication? And, and what, you know, can you advise other writers are really not what you're looking for? What is kind of, I guess, kind of what at the heart of what Pelico wants to do? I think What's important for us is we're, we're very budget orientated. We are a, a DI, we're independent. Um, we have a little bit of sponsorship from our, our friends at Hot Burns and Black, which is a little, they have two shops in South London. Um, and we have our Patreon, which has been very successful for us because I think it's a, you know, we don't have paywalled content. Uh, we're a consumer publication. And um, I was very inspired by that uh, Radiohead release when they you know, said, pay what you want for this album. And that's kind of where we're at. You know, like if you think if you can afford it and you think it's worth paying for then give us money, we don't offer a great deal of perks. It's more we say, if you want us to exist, then we'd love you to support us. And that's and, and some individuals do and a few businesses do. And it gives us enough money to do one, occasionally two pieces a week. And as that grows, Uh, We hope to improve on that. Although what I will say is that we're not built on a growth model. We're we're, the business plan. The the sort of introduction says we will just keep spending money on content until it all, till it runs out. I don't expect Pellicle to have a life beyond 10 years. Mm -hmm. That'll be, that'll be the, that'll be a great, I think culturally that's, that's a good lifespan for something before, you know, maybe it's time for something else more relevant to, to emerge um, but that's the, the aim is to just pay money. And uh, my our aim, I will say, there are four of us. And I should say, as well as Johnny, we recruited Lily Waite, mm-hmm. an incredible beer writer, and another great writer called Katie Mather, who are associate editors. They're two very busy people, but they do uh, help with the editing and commissioning 
um, at Pelicon now, and that's that's what our Patreon has allowed us to do. But 2022, our aim is to increase our rates um, and 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 try and be not just paying people uh, for for great articles, but pay them a competitive rate, if not the most competitive rate for a beer publication in the UK. Um, and if you want to pitch us, I wrote a guide um, with all our rates on. It's pellicalmag.com forward slash pitching, where I try to explain that we, I think initially we have this thing where we wanted to produce joyful content. Because for me, when you when you finish work for the day and you drink beer, you want that beer to be delicious and spark joy. And I wanted our content to um, be to give that same feeling. So profiles of breweries or individual beers or pubs, uh, ciders, wines, that kind of thing um, does really well for us. In fact, articles about pubs profiling the history and, and uh, relevance of an, one pub, they have been huge for us. Um, we also do some great food writing. The most popular piece we've published this year is a taxonomy of the British bread roll, which has lots of different terms uh, regionally and, and is made different regionally. And that's, that gets uh, hits, you know, month after month because people reference it and link to it. And that's really interesting to see, but what's different now, two and a half years in, we do feel our feet are more under the table. So we are looking for um, articles, looking for more challenging subjects. We've started to publish opinion pieces um I think uh, David Jesuderson, which is a, a writer that came to us relatively recently, um, he, and he is a, a British-Asian writer. That's how he describes himself. And he's written about um, Desi pubs, uh, Asian pubs in the UK, but also about how beer writing in the UK is, is an incredibly white space. We've recently published uh, this week an article about sustainability in wine, but it's more about the human end of sustainability and and if you're not looking after workers um then how can you possibly be sustainable so we are gradually growing into uh bolder pieces you know i think you have to earn trust of a reader before you um get into bigger topics so that when you deliver them you can be expected to deliver them well and have a bit more authority um and we will grow into that while always remembering that our core aim is to provide these end of the workday joyous pieces. You know, the, you want to read about the history of this fantastic beer over your morning coffee and then maybe go out and try and find that beer in the afternoon. So at the moment, it's balancing that. But you can read our pitching guide. I'll say the link again, pellicalmag.com forward slash pitching. And there's a whole description of, of the kind of content we look for, plus our style guide, plus all our rates. Really important for us. Uh, to have our rates published. I think that's something publications need to do to um, be more accessible to writers who might be a bit more nervous about pitching. I cannot recommend Arrived enough. Killer customer support, affordable, ability to start tabs without holding cards, keeps track of ounces sold for state reporting, two different ways to report tips, the list goes on. It's amazing, says Tracy Bardigan of Firemaker Brewing in Atlanta. For the past 150 years, the Siebel Institute of Technology has attracted an extensive global following. Its alumni span more than 60 countries and work in almost every major brewery on earth. Siebel's on-campus classes include a mix of participants from breweries of all sizes who hail from locations all over the world, enhancing the students' learning experiences by exposing them to differences in culture, equipment, methods, and beer styles. Visit Siebel's website at SiebelInstitute.com for more information on brewing education opportunities. One of the long-form pieces that you wrote for, for Pellicle, and one that was sort of dear to my heart, was the story of St. Mars of the Desert and Dan and Martha Dan Paquette and Martha Holly. Um, these are folks, you know, they are based, I'm based in Boston. They are folks who are long based in Boston. I know them quite well. I was actually there the night they met at the NARAX uh, festival. And actually, I think might've been standing next to Dan when he first met Martha, uh, though memory is something that's a very faulty, faulty thing to rely on. But I do remember the two of them there. Um, and Dan and Martha were set, you know, Dan, I remember him brewing 
at one of his, you know, his very early gigs, like at the Northeast Tap Room in, in Boston, that was very short lived. And he went on to do some very interesting things. And then he sort of met his match in Martha. And they, the two of them are a, a very interesting couple, very layered, very textured. Um, he is just a very intense person when it comes to beer and his dedication, which I, you know, hard to do this far into the game. But the two of them, did fantastic things here, you know, with pretty things, which was, it's still a cult favorite here and still a loss that we all feel very deeply in our, in our souls here. And it, it's almost like, you know, it's, this is a poor analogy, but it's almost like when you watch this, this, this great baseball player or basketball player develop within your own system and only, and when they're at the, the peak of their, their, their talent, then they're traded away somewhere. And, and now we've, we've lost them, but you, you are to gain and you wrote this fantastically layered piece that I also got to hear in audio form this past weekend uh, as I was driving. What attracted you to Dan and Martha in particular and why did you want to tell that story? So I'd had pretty things beer, you know, I was this writer who was obsessed with American beer culture and I think I got hold of a bottle of Jack Daw um, in a trade uh, a few years ago. And I remember being very enamored with them and, and knew they had a special place in the scene. And I actually found out um, very early on that they were moving to Sheffield and I was desperate to get their emails and, and be the first to turn up at their front door and um, and write this article about them. And I remember getting a message from a friend in Sheffield saying, you know, they've been through this stuff with pretty things, give them a bit of space, give them a bit of time. So I, I did, I, I just, um, I waited and then in 2009, I finally got to visit the tap room there. And I had 45 minutes uh, in between sessions at a festival I was attending. And I'd, I'd been doing some, some talks and stuff at the festival. And I instead spent two hours and 45 minutes in this tap room because it was such a warm and inviting place. Um, and it was just Dan and Martha brewing all the beer, doing it themselves. And I, I felt enamored to the brewery and the, and the beer was not just great, but it tasted of them. It, it, it didn't yes. taste yeah. like they were just following a recipe. It had this signature to it. And I was fascinated. And that's when I, after that visit, and I'd met them in person at least once, I reached out saying, I want to come and write this article about your brewery. Um, and I, I went back in January 2020 before everything went mad um, and spent a whole day with them. And we just kind of clicked like um, as people and I was very nervous to ask them some questions initially because they were involved in that whole uh, unveiling of pay to play practices in the Boston area. And I didn't want to just pile in with questions about all of that stuff. I wanted to get to know them and the beer. And eventually Dan actually said to me, you know, you can ask us about this stuff if you want. Yeah. And I was like, great. He, he almost sensed that I wanted to, but I was trying not to like push a wrong button because I was being delicate with this story and it just went from there and I remember one day you know talking about Jack Daw and just getting this story from Dan about this dream and I felt this was like huge information he was sharing with me about how like uh, the dream of Jack Daw the barley corn speaking Latin to him and how he, he got his friend um who, who uh you know as a Trappist monk and brewer in Boston at, at uh is it Spencer Spencer um, yes yeah and who one of his best friends who who they used to brew beer together and uh, had to translate the Latin for him. And it, every time I had more questions for them, it, it, it just unveiled another layer to this brewery. And I've written a lot of brewery profiles, but that, you know, this one was like, whenever I thought I had all the information, I'd ask a question and it would just open another door. And, uh, and I've, you know, one thing that I maintain as a writer is that I am, I am a beer enthusiast first and a writer second and I won't let, and I don't want to dampen my enthusiasm, although I, you know, I'm aware of the professional responsibilities, but I respect my, you know, I'm not going to take away the joy of my own beer experience because then I wouldn't be able to, to write like I do. Um, and, you know, I remain a huge fan of, of St. Mars of the Desert. I, I took a day off to go to Sheffield only a month ago just to go and spend a couple of hours in their tap room um I've, I've been twice actually recently in the last few months which has been a joy including to their first smod fest um so and you know they've become friends dan and martha that's the kind of people they are mm -hmm. um you know i wrote a book about beer and 
Dan bought it and immediately wanted to sit down and talk to me about it. And that was, that was such a, a, a surreal experience um, and, uh, uh, and something I really enjoyed. So, um, yeah, that's as a feature, that's the most, that's the piece of writing I'm the happiest with and um, absolutely thrilled that it got a North American Guild of Beer Writers Silver uh, in a very hotly contest- mm-hmm. contested category this year. But um, that that's by the by, just just getting to put that piece of writing out there and, and seeing it resonate with people on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, um, I, I spoke to a lot of people in Boston about... Um, about St. Mars of the Desert and they, you know, they asked me, can you send me a can of Jack Daw or something like that? And I'm like, no, you've got to come here and yes. there's not enough of it to send you. But um, you speak to people in Sheffield and, and they're like, it's the first craft beer they've had. And it's just changing. You know, you've got these old um, working class uh, kind of drinking culture in Sheffield you know, cascale drinkers, but they go to St. Mars and they're like, this is amazing. We, Cause they make a, a new England IPA. Their house beer is called clamp. Uh, and, but it's, you know, it's not like a lot of the hype new England IPAs. It's right. more subtle. Right. It's more nuanced. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, stem, it's a, it's a Dan and Martha beer, mm-hmm. but that beer is, you know, if they don't have that beer on their customers complain. <laughs> uh, so, um, I have to also have to sort of like uh, remind myself that I need to write about other breweries because I could just, I have so many nuggets on the cutting room floor from the article. I could just keep putting stuff out. <laughs> yeah, and I, I certainly understand that. And as somebody who was actually with them again, the night of the, the everything went down for the pay to play when he made his comments, uh, you know, I'm, a, I've sort of enmeshed in the Dan and Martha story from it's almost various early days you know, to, you know, to essentially when they got on the boat and, and departed here, our dear New England, but it's a, it was a fantastic, it's fantastic to see them continue that adventure uh, after some, some well-deserved mental health time away and just to to rejuvenate. Um, And I cannot wait when things get a little less crazy to, to head to Sheffield um, and to, to visit, because that is just the thing that the timing just never was quite right for them here because within, you know, maybe a year or two of their leaving is when the taproom uh, model really came into effect here in Boston. And the two of them, as you know, just, just the joy that must be, you know, you match their design and aesthetic skills along with, you know, their approach to beer and, and their, their reverence for it. I can only imagine how warm that space must and how just Dan and Martha ask that space must feel. And it's, it's a place I you know, certainly would be in the top five that I'm drawn to visit and, and just can't wait to get the opportunity. And Sheffield itself is an incredible beer town, especially if you're, if you're coming over from the US, Sheffield is, is cask country. Uh, every, you, you've got Thornbridge pubs, so you can find some, some Jaipur, and you've got pubs like the Kellam Island Tavern and Shakespeare's that just have all, you know, all of this really weird and wonderful stuff on cask. Um, it's, I would recommend anyone visit there for a, for a day out. It has a bit of everything. So you recently decided to move from London, which had been a home for, for many years for you to Manchester. What was for, you know, there are plenty of folks who tried to move to to various different places and try something new. Um, but my understanding from not having spent time in Manchester, there's a considerable difference culturally and just, just, just all of just everything that would go along with it between London and that town, uh, that major city. What was it about Manchester and what was it about this timing that, that was right for you to, to try something new? I think what's great about the UK is you can drive half an hour and you go to an area that's culturally completely different because we've got so many people on such a small island. And, and I think that's a, that's a strong thing about the UK. Um, but moving to Manchester, which I did just over a year ago, it's one of the best things I've Done in recent times. I lived in London for 15 years and I and I I left at just the right time for me because I still loved it. But I had a feeling if I was there for much longer, I might have started to to struggle with it because it's incredibly expensive to live there. Um, it's very busy, it does it doesn't let up. It's you know, it's great. It's like New York, everything's open all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want some food or some drink, you know, you can go somewhere. And the north isn't like that. People 
like to eat meals at certain times and like to go to bed early, especially earlier in the week. Um, but, you know, I'm from Lincoln, which is, I would say, is it's a part of the UK called the East Midlands, but has a mentality that's far more in tune than um, than London. And my partner, Diane, who I've been with for a, a long time, she wanted to leave London. We lived in the same apartment in London for nine years. It's the first apartment we've moved in together. And um, she wanted to move to the north. She suggested Glasgow. And she, for about five years, she tried to convince me to move. Uh, and I was enjoying London so much. Why would I want to move? But pre-lockdown, uh, so it would have been about sort of late summer 2019, I started to just get that itch saying, it's, it's not just the pace of life or the cost of life, but I wanted a new perspective. Everyone who wrote about beer lived in London and we all wrote about the same stuff and went to the same press events. And, and I just would travel to places like Leeds, Sheffield, Manchester, uh, Bristol, and, and think this is, it's totally different here. And I started to get the itch to go, I, I, I would like my perspective to be different. Manchester and Leeds were the two cities that I really wanted to move to. But Diane said, it's got to be Manchester. That's, that's, of, that's of those two, that's the one I want to move to. And she wanted to move to Glasgow, which is too far from London. And I still want to be able to get to London relatively easy. It's only two hours on a train from Manchester. So we, we, moved, we planned to move before the pandemic. And then the pandemic came in, so we had to postpone our plans. And as soon as the restrictions eased in July 2020, we just came straight here on a train and tried to find a house to rent. Um, and we did. Uh, and we got here straight away. And immediately after we moved, we were all locked down again. Um, so, but what it's given me is a totally different perspective on, on life, on beer culture, um, much closer to nature up here my hobby is is running and so i can get out and run trails for a couple of hours um the cask i love cask beer and the cask beer here is way better than in london because more people drink it it's just throughput mm -hmm. it, it's it's turns out it's not rocket science you just need to drink lots of it so it's fresh um there's many reasons but it's a slower pace of life and it's it's far friendlier something i love doing is going out for a beer by myself and sitting in a pub and having a beer and I used to do that in London and I could go out and have a couple of beers visit a few pubs and not speak to anyone then go home and that was a nice evening I'd, I'd catch up on emails and read a book but if I go in Manchester I don't bother checking my emails or reading a book or taking a book with me because I know that within five minutes someone is going to start a conversation with me and I will be in that conversation for mm -hmm. a while and if I go to another pub someone else will start a conversation with me. It's, it's, a, it's a very different uh, culture. And um, initially, having lived in London for so long, it was a bit jarring, but I quickly accepted it and found I preferred it. And now I'm one of those weird people that goes to London and tries to start a conversation with strangers. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> I, very, I very much understand what you're talking about. I'm from Chicago. And even though it is a very big city, it is a city that has a culture of individuals going out and drinking on their own, you know, stopping by the local bar, the neighborhood bar and having one or two, maybe you're reading a book, maybe you're more in modern times on your phone, but you know, oftentimes they'll folks will look across the bar from one another and just have conversations about local sports, politicians, news, just and absolutely nothing in general, beer culture. Uh, whereas here in Boston, we're a lot more buttoned up. If you tried to do that, people would look at you. There are a handful of places, and I and I tend to go to them, uh, but they are they're few and far between these days. And so there's something lovely about just having you know, sitting down and having uh, conversations with total strangers about innocuous topics and just getting to know other folks. Because a lot of modern life can be very, especially these days, can be very isolating, very individualistic. You're in your own pods, your own groups, and just exploring. And especially as writers and reporters and storytellers, that's, I love hearing from other people. I love to talk to other folks like that. Do you know what? Manchester reminds me quite a bit of Chicago. I was very lucky to spend a long weekend in Chicago in uh, 2016, one of the advantages of my dad living in Fort Collins is, and I, I love visiting the US. And what I love about visiting the US is I've managed to get around about 13 states so far and how in the UK people picture it as this one mass of, of country and culture. And this is what it's like and how different it is, you know, and, yes. and, and that's something I've enjoyed 
learning about. But Chicago, uh, Chicago and Philly uh, had had a, that vibe where you sit at a bar and you you yeah. sort of enter this conversation. And Manchester uh, has that uh, Chicago ness. It's that's everyone lives a bit slower mm-hmm. um, and appreciates stuff, and and that's that's what I like about living up here. Uh, I think a topic that has been getting more and more coverage in recent um, in recent years, and deservedly so, is is one of mental health and dealing with stress and anxiety. And I know it's something that you know you know I have started to discuss in podcasts with you know with recent guests, and it's something that it it is it is a little bit not forbidden, but it's just something that's a little taboo. We don't often talk about it. It's one of those things that I think we all have started to realize that oh, especially with pandemic, you know talking about these subjects actually is very helpful. It's not something that we should be ashamed of or something that should be stuffed down into a drawer. And I've been having, especially as it relates to just the creative process and the impacts that, that mental health and anxiety and stress can have on that um, is, is, is remarkable. And I think anyone who has followed your, you know, either the podcast or your, your online, especially Twitter posts, Note that it's a subject that you, with some frequency, discuss, and it, it just you kind of um, tend to be fairly open about just how you're doing day to day, and and I think it's sort of revealing for somebody who I think is, has established himself quite well in this industry uh, to sort of send a, a broader signal out to folks of you know sometimes it's okay not to be okay, sometimes you're going to have up and down days, sometimes it's very difficult to write, uh, but why have you sort of chosen to to be this open about it? I kind of, you know, hanging out with groups of men, it just doesn't, you don't speak about it. And, you know, I was, I was, when I was born in in the early eighties and so probably a kid of the nineties, it just wasn't something you talked about. And I'm very lucky that I've got a a lot of women friends who, who are very, you know, and my partner, Diane, who are very open about this stuff. And I realized that, you know, uh, internalizing this stuff is, long term is it's very damaging and you you need to express this stuff and get it get it out and I, the pandemic you know gave gives you a lot of thinking time so something i started doing a few years ago as well just to rewind a little is i st- i um i suffer with stress and anxiety like a lot of people but i was recommended headspace mm-hmm. um the meditation app and that's be- i use that most mornings still um, you know, it's, I found that the process of, of doing 15, 20 minutes of mindful meditation, uh, is great. It's not, it's not like a pill you take and it, it fixes you, but it, 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 it's, um, that it, you know, teaches you to, to sit with these things and acknowledge them. That's the, that's, that's what it, that's what you learn. And part of that acknowledgement is, you know, understanding, you know, I talked earlier about having a responsibility to readers, and a recent example of this is I wrote an article about how I essentially went to a beer festival my first after the pandemic and had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to write it. And then I, but I knew the, the, the story was there and I hadn't really told anyone about it, but I told, you know, I was on the Slack with the, the Pellicle team and saying, I think I should uh, uh, write this. And uh, then I was like, actually, I've, I've just written it. And I don't know, we'll publish it. And then they all read it and said, no, we should absolutely publish this because people will relate to the experience. Um, and then I had to reach out to, I was actually at the beer festival for a very good friend's birthday. So I reached out to her and said, I'm going to re- publish this, but like, I'm sorry, I didn't say anything on the day. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, I didn't have the ability to, but I'm going to put this article out. And, and then a few other people who saw me on the day reached out since and said, oh, I wish you'd said something. And I had to explain, it's like, well, I, I couldn't, right. I was... I wasn't doing great and it, you know that I wasn't ready to 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 talk about it and you know I'm a writer so I I worked out where I was at with that by sitting down and writing about it um but the more I talk about this stuff the more people come to you and say oh I have a, I've had a similar experience um I think uh for men especially who just you know the the idea I grew up in a culture of like you know manning up and and toxic masculinity you know i worked in the musical instrument industry which was a very toxic space much like we've seen reported about craft beer mm-hmm. over the last year and and uh, it's it's deeply unpleasant and com- actually communicating that and saying this isn't really my scene and this is how i feel um that's 
kind of the, the tonic to to establish how you're going to work through it and, and have more productive conversations. Um, the podcast is, has been really interesting, actually, because um, I listened to a great podcast called The Blind Boy Podcast, which is where I was one of the podcasts that does this kind of monologue style um, talk radio almost. And I was like, I, I really this is a really interesting idea and I want to explore some like, what if I theorize that, you know, I get interviewed a bit, but no one ever asked me this question. So what if I asked myself that question and gave myself an hour to explore it? So the first one I did on the podcast was beer taxation in the UK. And what I started doing at the start of these podcast episodes was like, let's just check in what's been happening. And it was the pandemic. And it was almost therapeutic to say, mm. well, this is what I've done. And this is what I went to the pub and it was like this. And then I was like, God, this is a bit boring. <laughs> then people email saying, oh, I love that bit where you just check in with what's happening and talk yeah. about your feeling. And, and, um, and so I'm like, that's great. I'm going to keep doing that as I, as I continue to work on this podcast. It's that format doing audio has been uh, really fun. I, like I'm trying to work out ways the thing is with a podcast is it takes three, four times the the amount of time to produce one episode as it does to write one article. Right. Um, because I'm doing all the, the editing and stuff as well. Um, it does for me anyway, because I spend hours cutting out every repetition and, and, um, and heavy breath. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating format and, um, people, people seem to dig it, which is, which is fun. So, I think it's important that this stuff continues, but also it, it shouldn't just be, you know, very much conscious of decentering myself and not just saying, oh, this is how I feel, but making sure it's a, it's a conversation with other people and hopefully expand on that as uh, we move forward. I'm glad you mentioned the podcast. And as I've said before, it's one that I, I very much enjoy. And, it, and it's interesting because it's, it is somewhat... Um, it, it, it comes out without any frequency and without any real, it just sort of a new episode will drop. It may be a month or two or, or longer. And I, and frankly, I know that as someone who is supposed to be doing something weekly, you know, it takes quite some time and sometimes you just don't have the energy for it and you, you forget it, how much, you know, plenty of folks just put these podcasts out that are just them rambling with, you know, four friends and they're three and a half hours long. And those are why I don't listen to a lot of these podcasts, but those that take some time, they take time. Um, and with your podcast, I was just curious because it is a different listen than not just most beer podcasts. And I would say almost every beer podcast, but most podcasts just generally, uh, we have a format much similar to the one we're doing here, where it's two individuals or more speaking to one another, either interview style or round table discussion, but yours is much more of, as you described it, a monologue. It is this sort of discussion uh, it's almost like just getting in, in a look at your inner thoughts. And, and it sounds as if you're sort of working through your own thoughts as you're, as you're discussing sometimes, which would me for, to me, would be madness for a podcast. I don't know how I would, I would achieve it. So just to start out logistically, how does this work? Is this all recorded in one go? Is it done in three, three minute bits? And then you take a breath and think about what you're going to say next. How much of a plan do you have? Because I can't imagine flipping the record switch and speaking for half an hour or, or longer and having anything really new to say. All of the above. It's, it's quite a challenging format. Um, but one that I will say that, it, you know, it, uh, practice makes perfect, but um, it's all in the, in the edit. So sometimes I will get into an idea and I will talk for 40, 45 minutes and it will flow. And then I will, you know, I'll cut out bits that are, um, irrelevant. So, you know, going back to what I did my degree in, I, I studied music production and radio production at university. So I have, have the skills and then I worked in music. So I have the equipment to, to do this kind of thing. Um, and, and editing was something, editing audio was something I was always quite good at. Um, so sometimes, so this weekend, I'm trying to record an episode at the moment. I plan, I've got about five or six episodes planned and some of them will, I've got some interviews recorded. I'll be publishing. Uh, and I've got a few different, um, uh, style formats for episodes. I'm going to try mixing it up. So it's not just always an hour of me talking because I, you know, I would get bored of that. So I want to keep it interesting for the listeners, 
But I'm trying to record an episode at the moment about my feelings about the New Belgium sale, which was, mm-hmm. you know, that happened at the end of 2019. And it's come back into focus um, with the Bell sale yes. recently. But what I, I, I have friends that work for New Belgium. Fort Collins is my second home. And with so many of these brewery buyouts, I've been trying to figure out how I feel about them. And there's always people who say, oh, you shouldn't. It's a business making a business decision. Why are people having an emotional reaction? So I've been trying to record an episode to explore that. And I sat down this weekend to do it. And I got 20 minutes in and I just stopped and I listened back to it. And I was like, I haven't got it yet. And I'm going to have to start again. So tomorrow morning when, when I'm fresh, I will have another crack at recording that. And I will probably record for about 90 minutes, knowing that 30 minutes of that will be unusable because I will, I work myself into a tangent. So it's all in the edit. I try and target myself for an hour, but it's just like writing an article. It's exactly the same thing. This makes no sense. I've got no source to back this up. I need to delete this and cut to this part. Um, so that's why it takes me a while. Um, the other thing is that, my full-time job is writing about beer and it's a challenging industry at the moment. So um, the good news is I just got a new sponsor. I won't reveal who it is just yet. It's a very exciting sponsor. Um, and the next episode will have this sponsorship message. And I want to hear people to hear that uh, before uh, I reveal who it is, but, um, and it's not, it's not a brewery or a beer business. This is what's quite exciting for me. Um, but um, I, yeah, it, it's just a format that takes me a, a lot of time uh, to, to do. And, but it doesn't, I don't pay myself for it. So I can't invest myself in it in right. the same way I would, you know, I need to pick up features and invoice them so I can pay my rent and, and live the, uh, the classy life of a beer writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, hope the podcast is a new thing. So it's, I did the same thing as my writing. I needed to start recording podcasts. It took me about 17 episodes to figure out that this format, the the monologue talk radio format was my kind of niche in, in this and trying to do something a little bit different. And, you know, now I'm 26 episodes in and I've picked up a sponsor um, that will uh, mean I can pay myself for the next six episodes which is, you know, it's not not a lot of money, but it's enough to go, well, I can dedicate four hours to this today because, um, you know, I've got an invoice for it. So that's something that's um, often not talked about. You know, I could get another job, uh, you know, and but I don't want to. I want to invest all of my time in beer writing and figure out how I can um, make it pay so that I can keep doing it. Um, and sometimes when it's the weekend and I'm like, oh, I really need to get an episode out, but I'm absolutely knackered and it's not happening. I can't get the ideas out. I'll, I'll put it aside. And then it's Monday morning and I'm like, well, I've got to do this, this, and this so I can invoice this and then I can work on the podcast. Um, and thankfully today I had a really productive day. So tomorrow morning I will record, fingers crossed, a podcast. This has been Andy Crouch and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. We're back with John Hannafin, who is talking with us about the value of a brewing education at the Siebel Institute. What makes Siebel stand out from other educational options or schools for those students? Well, our main focus has and always will be brewing and beer. You know, we're a brewing school, plain and simple, and the Siebel Institute name has always been synonymous with brewing since 1872. So we're not just a program within a larger entity offering other educational options, such as a college or university. And, and any education 
from our perspective, is good education. What makes us truly different is that we offer focused, fast-track courses and programs taught by industry professionals from North America and Europe, so students truly get the old world and new world educational experience. You know, other programs or schools use staff or, or to instruct who may or may not have any commercial brewing experience, and some may only have some home brewing under their belts, to be honest. So that's what truly sets us apart. You know, we have a, a great instructional staff that's in the industry or has been in the industry, fast-track education. So if you want to be in the industry in under six months, then Siebel would be your choice for sure. With more than 150 years of operation, the Siebel Institute is the oldest brewing school in the United States. Alumni hail from more than 60 countries and work in breweries of all sizes across the globe. Its educators and content experts are leaders in the beer industry. Siebel's fast-track approach to brewing studies is tailored for professionals, and it offers on-campus and online courses that range from two weeks to 12 months. Visit Siebel's website at SiebelInstitute.com for more information on brewing education opportunities. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrived will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's Arrived with a Y. A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you.